1: Lindy them the way, and he's the hero of them. All.
0: Charlie's future is bright and Francine's father, E.B. Rumford, one of the richest men in the United States in 1927, has big plans at the company for Charlie until Until the Gables on the Hudson Gala for Charlie and Francine for their engagement. And then it all ends. Or should I say, it all begins. And what would transmitting a signal to a star system be without an incredibly complicated operation involving rare elements, airplane flights, and beings beyond anything existing in 1927? Here is Episode 2 of Once in a Lifetime, and Once in a Lifetime it is... once in a lifetime. Chapter six. As Jamel had predicted, Charles Lindbergh assumed a hero status in the eyes of the nation. Millions of people turned out to pay tribute to him and his great accomplishment. From the tower that morning, Charlie saw the bright harbor littered with every conceivable type of boat. Prodigious fire hose jets streamed skyward toward the sweeping sky riders, horns blared, and the atmosphere grew wild. Afraid he might be seen by the old man, Charlie met Jamel along Broadway, away from the tower. Her persistent work left her fatigued, but she still retained a joyful spirit. The unfolding historical events enthralled her as they passed through the celebrating crowd. Jamel, I haven't seen anything like this since last summer. Gertrude Ederley's parade. I stayed in the tower for that, but it was nothing like this. Everything will be different now. It's not just the feeder flying to Paris, like Columbus sailing to the New World, it's the ramifications. The man's got it made. Oh, he'll lead a quite complicated life, dying with his family away from the crowds buried in Maui. Long time from now. A very long time, but fame had its price. He knew that more than any man. Charlie nodded, fascinated with her ability to look into the future. But I wonder what it's like to be Charles Augustus Lindbergh today. She pointed at a puffy skywriter trail across the iridescent blue dome. Hail Lindbergh. Charlie shielded his eyes and smiled as he gazed up. Graham McNamee blasted out reports of the parade's progress from storefront radios along the way. At a city hall reviewing stand, Mayor Walker presented Lindbergh with the Medal of Valor. Al Smith and a raft of dignitaries looked on. Not until some time later, when Charlie saw the torrent of colorful confetti forming a descending paper storm over Midtown, did he realize that Lindbergh was near. Cars and mounted police moved alongside motorcycle cops. People cheered from the windows and the curbs. With his arm planted firmly around Jamal, Charlie remained in awe as the procession squeezed through the avalanche of paper and people. I see him! I see him, Jamal! Says official car! the arbor-haired Lindbergh, sat next to a man in the back of an open car. Young and handsome, clad in a blue pinstripe suit, Lindbergh seemed to accept his newfound fame gracefully. The entourage of police, horses, movie cameras, and reporters all moved by in unison. Is that Al Smith, Charlie? No, that's Borough President Byrne. Everyone's honing in on the act. Look at Lindbergh. He looks so serene. The moment, Charlie, capturing eternity right here. That's what it feels like to be Charles Lindbergh today. Inches from Charlie's face, her bright blue eyes had a beckoning quality he found hard to resist. He pulled her closer and kissed her. Something in her lips sent him spinning, and he hoisted her into the air, her tight face backlit against the azure sky. You're beautiful. (laughs) You're in love. I knew I had a crush on you the moment I saw you at the stadium, he said. He slowly lowered her back to the sidewalk. I sensed that, and my own feelings. He kissed her again. I'm going to pull you away from that transmitter. You, Jamal, may have flown back through time, but you've never ridden the giant cyclone at Coney Island. Then it's dinner, and if you're good, I'll take you to a speakeasy. They started back down Broadway. Charlie, don't you need a password at a speakeasy? Sure. Mine is Fred Collins. A drink? No, that's a Tom Collins. Fred Collins was some guy trapped in a cave a few years ago. The whole country waited for him to be rescued. Seriously, we'll dance to some jazz, have a few drinks, and we'll see how much of a flapper you are. A what? Like Louise Brooks. You know that film last year, Love Em and Leave Em? I don't know what you're talking about. On the cover of life, The Flappers. John held cartoons about The Flappers. He gripped her shoulders. And we'll do The Charleston. She started giggling. Well, that sounds perfectly splendid. Her elation flipped to panic as she pulled Charlie out of the crowd. They ducked into a small market and she opened the case. Elf, Elf, what is it?
1: Jamal, I am quite certain someone has broken through the continuum. Are you sure it's not a mistake? There are numerous readings sweeping across upstate New York.
0: Is it the rarer ship, Eugus and Crispin?
1: Unknown. Who are
0: Eugus and Crispin? Asked Charlie. My comrades and my friends. They went back in the first ship.
1: We have to return to the flat right away. He
0: could feel the tension in her smooth hand as they dashed down the sidewalk. Charlie had never been so edgy. He found a cab waiting amidst the crowd, and they leaped inside but maneuvering through the stragglers soon proved difficult. She pleaded for the driver to move faster. Panic overtook the voice of this self-assured woman, always in control, and her body gyrated aimlessly. Finally, as they rolled forward, Jamel shook her head and blamed herself for not having completed the transmitter. The tires screeched through the alleys around her flat. Charlie quickly paid the fare as Jamel pushed open the door and sprinted back toward the brick building. He rushed after her, catching her at the freight elevator, and she said nothing. Her fists were crunched as they moved upward. Inside her apartment, an orange wisp brushed over the map's glowing white latitude and longitude lines, condensing into a pinpoint upstate. An enlarged portion of the screen appeared like an exaggerated piece of red and yellow tangled rope. There were crimson lines and changing equations he could not begin to comprehend. I don't see the pattern, Elf. Charlie looked at the machine and then back to the map.
1: The continuum was open, Jamal. A random sweep of particles now dissipated. No operational capacity is noted.
0: Are you saying no one came through, Alf?
1: An interesting question. I cannot fully access the possibility at the present time. I am reviewing all variables.
0: For hours, Jamal bounced between the consoles and the wall panels and tried to understand the validity of the readings, but as time passed, she only grew frustrated. Charlie made ham and rye sandwiches in the kitchen and perked some coffee on the stove. As afternoon dragged into night, and after long hours of discussions with Elf, she concluded the readings were indeed preliminary. Something might yet break through time. Not sure whether the first Rara ship containing Yugas and Crispin had come back in time, Jamal explained that the Avegis had appropriated the last ship. She sat under her transmitter, drank coffee from a chipped white cup, and explained the facts bluntly to Charlie. These powerful chameleons, the Avegis, would be coming back through time specifically to stop her on her first Rara ship. They were ruthless and clever in their pursuit would try to kill her and destroy any chance of warning the Sagians about the future deadly Avegis attack. She shut down the panels, the wall projection, and the overhead lights. He took her hand and they walked into the other room. Once the inner door shut, she turned to him. No matter what happens to me, Charlie, you have to break it off with Francine. They faced each other in the low light. Yeah, but it's not that easy. Do you still love her? Charlie laughed. I never really loved her. I got sucked into the relationship. How will I die if I stay with her? Listen, one of the hardest things to accept is not knowing, especially when you're capable of knowing. I have to ask you to accept not knowing. She put her fingers against the window, and the city's glow covered her slim face. Her vibrant eyes were tired, heavy with the responsibility she shouldered. She bit her lower lip. Are you okay? She nodded and crossed her arms as she tried to restrain her emotion. Sometimes I just don't think I'm going to be capable of handling all this. Charlie stepped toward the window, looped his arms around her and gradually squeezed tighter. Her hands fell loose, creeping up his back as she buried her soft hair against his chest. He gently kissed her hair, still keeping his arms firmly planted around her slender frame. No matter what happened now within this bizarre scenario, he would stand by her, and they would face the future together. Once in a lifetime. Chapter 7. Charlie's ambivalence would not allow him to leave Francine. Several times in July, he again implied the relationship should end. But with the social gala at the gables on the Hudson only days away, he found himself stuck. She would not embarrass the old man and all of New York society. At his desk that week, the phone affixed to his ear and a lucky hanging out of his mouth, he saw the puffy-haired Mrs. Davis trying to get his attention in the doorway. Charlie raised his finger and finished the phone call. Listen, we need the fishing rods in all the stores this week, bud. Not next week. We have it advertised. Any delay is going to create a bad feeling with myself and EB. He set down the phone, closed his eyes, and rubbed his temple as his head throbbed. Why did these people promise things they could not deliver? Charlie, said Mrs. Davis. Oh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Davis. I hate to be the one to tell you this, but E.B. wants to see you. What? Maybe Francine told the old man about the shaky relationship. He sprang from the chair and ground the cigarette into a glass ashtray. With great alacrity, he adjusted his tie, tucked in his shirt, and pushed his cufflinks back in place. He swiped his suit off the door hook and thanked Mrs. Davis as he went by. In the elevator, his hand shook. He ran a comb through his wispy blonde hair and, with his handkerchief, dabbed the sweat beads off his high forehead. The old man knew. He had to know. With less than a week to the engagement party on the Hudson, E.B. might fire him and still allow the party to go forward. Francine headed for Chicago last night and we'd be back this weekend. The elevator doors opened, and he peeked into E.B.'s suite. The upper area, with walnut-paneled walls, heavy marble inlaid, and imported wool rugs, smelled important. The dynamic Miss Markheim, with her glassy blue eyes and short brown hair, greeted him at the door. He tagged Markheim as the force behind the man. She never stopped working, and probably never had an unproductive day in her life that she had the annoying habit of fixing her smile for five seconds and then resuming her stolid countenance.
1: Good afternoon, Mr.
0: Russo. I trust you're having a rewarding day. Mr. Rumford is waiting for you. You may proceed. Thank you, Miss Markheim. She sounded like a cop. Taking a deep breath, he shuffled forward, his hands clamping on the heavy brass doorknob. The cherry tobacco leaked into the hall before he fully opened the door. E.B., rarely seen without his pipe, stood in front of a long window span overlooking the wide city panorama. All the years of hard work, the nights and the weekends, hung in the balance now, and still the old man had not faced him. You sent for me, Mr. Rumford? Charlie, uh, please come in and sit down. Yes, sir. E.B.'s precisely trimmed gray hair and silver-rimmed glasses, everything properly aligned, were indicative of his whole life. His strong ego dominated, his credentials were unmatched, and his position powerful. He had always liked Charlie and respected his performance, but Charlie feared even more than losing his job that he would let the old man down. Charlie sat in one of the high-backed mahogany chairs, wondering, as he always did, whether to place his hands on the shiny tabletop. He finally folded his hands on the table, wondering why the old man had not turned around. He nervously panned the museum atmosphere where E.B. had, with Miss Markheim's help, adorned the office with paintings, vases, and trinkets worth more money than Charlie had made in his time on the planet. We have a problem. Problem, sir? asked Charlie, tightening his knuckles white. Yes, a problem. Okay, let's talk about it. With the end in sight, the old man, still puffing on his pipe, spun around like a soldier in a marching drill. Francine is in Chicago for a few days, and or I would talk to her. And Mrs. Rumford has her opinions, of course. I am debating in light of the affair. Affair? Yes, the affair at the Gables. I'm wondering if it would be socially unacceptable, you know, breaking the social graces. If we were to have the wedding reception in September in the same outside tent. Sir, I don't know if I... The weather and the season, of course, would be the problem. Perhaps we should keep the plans for the Savoy. Anyway, gathering this weekend at the Gables will allow you to contact a plethora of well-placed people. These people, Charlie, will be the backbone of your social and business life. I appreciate that, Mr. Rumford. My wife is so heavily involved with the plans, and I dare say even if I wanted to switch to the Gables in September, it would be clearly impossible. You know, woman, they make up their minds and we men follow along. I think Will Rogers said something like that. Let a woman have their way. Something like and you'll get even with them at the end. Yeah, that was it. E.B. laughed steadily. The adage rang true within the old man's life. His blue eyes were moist as the laughter trickled off. You are so right, Charlie. Listen, I read your remarks for this weekend. I'm not changing a word. Everything is set. We'll start things off on the right foot. He shook Charlie's hand. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. E.B. suggested that he return to work. As he glided by the marble fireplace, Miss Markheim handed him several reports as he gleefully passed by the outside desks, but he questioned his elation when he reached the elevator. He had his job, but would face death in August if he did not end the relationship. The doors opened and Herbie raised his dark brows as he leaned against the paneled wall. Charlie went inside and the doors closed. Charlie, everything is set. We move that crate. Ready when you are. You're nervous. Of course I'm nervous. We're talking about bringing... Never mind. You can bring whatever we ask up to the gallery and no questions asked. Charlie, you're talking to a guy that's running Canadian liquor out of the basement. Charlie rubbed his tired eyes. I'm losing track of everything, Herb. I haven't even seen a Yankee game in weeks. And I should. The way they're going, the babe may break his own record. Garrig's right with him. Hey, Charlie, my sources tell me that Francine went to Chicago. I know that. She could be seeing Saron. The car slowed. I got other things to worry about, Herb. Just be ready when we are. We? Me. The doors opened and Charlie wandered onto the Windy Gallery. He wished he had been fired. Then the pressure would be gone and he could work with Jamel. But now he faced a full gathering of New York's high society. He had never felt at ease with any of them. More than that, for his own safety, with August rapidly approaching, he would have to end the relationship with Francine. Once in a lifetime. Chapter eight. A few years back at home in Jefferson Falls, Charlie would have only dreamed about driving to a place such as the Gables on the Hudson. In his black tuxedo, he cautiously drove through the grounds. Ahead, a castle of such opulence and nobility appeared as if out of a children's fairy tale book. Even though late to the affair, he eased on the gas pedal with an uncharacteristic trepidation. He had taken a course in architecture in school and recognized the solid rock turrets, the archways and the peaked windows, as well as the pinnacled roofs of the estate. Across the sheared grass, a greenhouse the size of a small ballpark reflected the afternoon sunlight. He had pursued this high lifestyle since college. Yet death, according to Jamal, awaited him in August. He could not shed the butterflies in his stomach as he slowed at the valet. I can take your car, sir, said the little guy, who looked as if he had worn his maroon suit and bow tie since birth. Where's the tent, bud? Beyond the greenhouse, near the river, but I have to insist you hand me the keys. Forget it. Charlie continued down the drive. In the rearview mirror, the little guy and three other men jumped all around. He lit a Lucky and moved the 62 around the greenhouse grounds. An expansive white tent, erected on the grass and under the lofty old trees, overlooked the wide blue river near Tarrytown. Charlie navigated his 62 slowly now. He swung the car around and back toward the wooden tent supports. He burst out of the car and headed for the tent opening. A jazzy number filtered out as he approached a white-vested waiter. "'What's the band playing?' "'A summer melody,' said the waiter, straightening Charlie's tie. "'Ain't that the truth,' he quipped. "'Knowing these people, Jolson will probably be singing it. "'They have had Jolson at their so-called affairs.' "'No kidding,' he buttoned his tux. "'And Miss Fanny Bryce. "'Well, I guess I better become hoity-toity. "'Good luck. "'Thanks, bud.' He ran his fingers through his hair and inconspicuously passed through the open flap. Several hundred people had gathered inside the tent and no one seemed to know him, the man marrying Francine Rumford. He had difficulty finding the main table, but saw George Rumford walking down the center aisle. Afternoon, George. George raised his brow. Oh, Charlie, are you aware you have arrived late? Yes, I am, George. And do you have your remarks, or have you forgotten them, too? I have my remarks, George. Where's the main table? George paused, seemingly taken aback about having to give him directions to the table. The main table, Charlie, is up front. He tilted his head up and walked away. Charlie grimaced and turned. Francine, her hair bleached Dutch boy style, danced up in front in a silky silver gown. All the rumors about Cerrone hit him like an accelerating locomotive heading out of Grand Central. He wondered if he could be civil, but she beamed when she saw him. She dragged him across the dance floor, guzzled another drink, and staggered back to the main table. He saw his own death every time he looked at her. After a seven-course catered dinner, Workus carried a motion picture projected to one of the tables and draped down a wide silver screen from rope attachments. E.B. had arranged to show the elite what the general public only saw in the movie theaters. They would watch some newsreels and then a short movie called The Love of Sonya* with Gloria Swanson. I am honored that the entire Shelburne family would be so gracious to allow us the honor of our daughter Francine and her fiancé Charles to be here on their most elegant estate. I know when Alexander Johnson Dudley designed the main building, He and the subsequent occupants, including Mrs. Shelburne's late father John, would be impressed by the engines of industry that fuel our great country, the United States of America. He lifted his champagne glass high. To Alexander Johnson Dudley, the crowd responded, and Charlie rolled his eyes. To Babe Ruth. E.B. set down his glass. I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge that the movie that we are about to watch, Miss Swanson's movie, was premiered at the Roxy last month. The newsreel sequence is current and courtesy of my friends at the Paramount News. Charlie leaned back just as the black box vibrated in his pocket. He opened his eyes wide. I need some air, Francine. The booze made her breath obnoxious. What's wrong? Nothing, but you better back off on the giggle water. Why, I'm perfectly sober. He rolled his eyes again, scurried from the table, and snuck out the side flap. Perhaps the continuant had been broken. He ran down the grass, little lucky, and pulled out the box under a spreading oak.
2: This is Alf, Charlie. Jamal has great news for you. Jamal, are you all right? Everything is fine here. I didn't mean to startle you, Charlie. I've just completed structuring the first module of the transmitter.
0: He looked back toward the glowing white tent in the twilight along the river. The hawk-nosed Will Dillingham, once engaged to Francine, Smoked a cigarette outside the flap and glared down at him. You've been waiting for this for months. That's wonderful. She spoke in a lower, fatigue-laden voice.
2: A lot of work is behind me now. If I can get some raw materials and pull it all together, the transmitter will be functional once the rare ship arrives.
0: Excellent. You've worked so hard.
2: Tell him Ruth went one ahead of Gary.
0: How many? Thirty?
2: Thirty-two. Yanks won. Seven to nothing. Shocker got the win.
0: Jamel, somebody's coming. The lanky Dillingham galloped down the hill. Charlie leaped behind the prodigious oak and then peered around the tree. Only 20 feet away, Dillingham approached rapidly. Call me when you can. I will. Dillingham circumnavigated the tree and extended his hand as he scanned the immediate area. Charlie held the box behind his back. I wanted to congratulate the best man. Charlie grinned. I'm the groom, Will. No, I mean the best man, one Francine. Did I hear you talking with someone? No, I'm just out for a stroll, said Charlie. Charlie had a fixed smile. No, I distinctly heard you and saw you speaking into some kind of radio. Will, I was practicing my speech. He tried to nudge Will back toward the tent, but dropped the transmitter. Will took a full step back and his mouth dropped. Charlie quickly retrieved the box out of the grass. What in God's green earth was that? Cigarette box. Charlie scrambled back up the hill, but Will gained ground as he neared the open tent flap. Who were you talking to, Russo? The man in the moon. This country doesn't need any more subversives. You could find yourself in big trouble. Unsure what Dillingham would do, Charlie returned inside and the lights were lowered. He staggered in near darkness between the tables and leaned against one of the supports. Dillingham parked himself in the tent opening and scrutinized Charlie's every move. If I could have your attention, said E.B. standing next to the screen, I would ask the invited guests to honor a great man tonight before we watch Miss Swanson's short feature. Colonel Lindbergh's triumph has been preserved on film for the ages. We will project that triumph this evening and the ensuing acclamation. Please enjoy the screening. Thank you. Charlie stood against the wood tent support as light shot from the projector and onto the screen. He saw Francine at the head table. The newsreel began, first showing Colonel Lindbergh in California, where they built the Spirit of St. Louis. Shots of the plane trekking across the United States and eventually to Long Island were vivid in black and white. The preparations before the historic flight were captured on film. The bumpy takeoff into the mist on the screen lacked the reality of actually being there. He smiled and visualized how radiant Jamal looked on that morning. Dillingham repeatedly stared. Charlie, concerned he might call the police, worried about Jamal being arrested. He smiled politely at Francine's former beau and looked back to the screen as Lindbergh moved through Washington and a later sequence showed the New York Harbor boats. Charlie only listened to the radio broadcast from City Hall, but now he saw Mayor Walker actually awarding a medal to Lindbergh. Dillingham had disappeared, but Francine approached in the low light as the New York parade began on the screen. Charlie, where have you been? Who, me? Will made some mention of you and some commotion outside. He's probably trying to stir up trouble. Charlie shrugged his shoulders, but he grew increasingly uncomfortable in his sweat-saturated shirt. He removed his tux. Francine raised her brows and chided him out of the corner of her mouth. Oh, gosh, Charlie, put your tuxedo back on! I'm burning up. Good Lord, you are so ill-mannered. Francine turned back to the screen as Lindbergh, in an open car surrounded by a mounted police escort, sailed through a storm of ticker tape and confetti. The camera caught the densely packed crowd, but when Charlie saw himself with Jamal, he cringed. Almost immediately, the tent buzzed. Francine just shook her head with her mouth open as on the screen, Charlie lifted Jamel into the air and kissed her. There were a deep gasps and then an eerie hush. Mother McCree, he whispered. She slapped his face. What in God's name were you doing? You bastard! Kissing, you ought to try it sometime. Mother! Mother! Francine ran back to her mother at the head table. Someone stopped the projector and the lights popped on. In the mass confusion, Dillingham ran up front and yelled something to the crowd as he pointed at Charlie. George appeared from nowhere, calling him a rogue and a scoundrel. Charlie briefly noticed E.B. stymied at the main table and still sitting as Francine hugged her mother. Through the intense jeers, he ran for the safety of his car. He had his keys in hand as he ripped open the door and climbed in the 62. The little guy pointed. Hey, you can't do that. It's my car, bud. More workers appeared behind the car and shouted at him as he started the engine. He popped the clutch, but it only moved a few feet forward before the car abruptly stopped, and he hit the wheel hard. Dazed, he shifted and released the clutch again, but as he pushed the accelerator to the floorboards, he could not move forward. People screamed inside the tent as his tires spun the dirt upward. Something cracked loudly, and he went ahead a few feet, and people cried out. Then he pressed his lips and shifted. Charlie stopped the car and got out. Ahead, the broken support pole had toppled to the ground. He watched in astonishment as the portion of the tent fell inward. Then the sides of the huge tent bulged as the other poles folded in succession, and the mammoth canvas tent, like a balloon slowly losing air, collapsed to the ground. Stunned. He leaped back in the car and accelerated over the grass itself. In the rear mirror, the once behemoth tent had vanished into the night. He passed the castle and whipped onto the main road, but he did not slow according to his odometer until he had reached a point twenty miles from the gables. The city glowed before him along the river. Even at this distance, the tower, dominating the skyline, beckoned him back as he got behind the wheel. His whole life would change now. E.B. would act swiftly and decisively, removing his effects from the tower. He felt oddly relieved. No more Francine, no more pressure about power and position. But with this new freedom came the loss of his potential in business and everything he had worked for to achieve since arriving from Ohio. Yet he grinned, little lucky, and laughed. What a way to end it all. Less than an hour later, he parked the car near the plaza and entered the tower's Broadway entrance. Herbie looked over from the lobby wall. Hey, Charlie, I'm sorry. They already cleaned out your desk. Word travels fast. It's all right if I go up top? Sure. They crossed the tiles to the elevator. Did you really knock over that tent, Charlie? Oh, yeah, he said, smiling. He turned to Herbie and squinted as he spread out his hands. The wood support pole was like an elastic and snapped. They all scattered like rats leaving a ship. No kidding. The Sheik of Araby, Charlie Russo, is no more. Leave that one for Valentino. Herbie stroked his chin and then nodded his cheek as they neared the elevators. And you were caught on film kissing some dame. Just my luck, Herb. Camera was rolling. E.B. must have done cartwheels. They walked inside and the car zoomed upward. I feel bad for E.B. I really do. Not the rest of them, but I respected the old man. He believed in me. I regret hurting him. He'll get over it. She sure as hell will. She's probably already called you, buddy, Sirone. The car slowed. Not my buddy. Anything I can get you, Charlie? Yeah, coffee, Herb, if it's not too much trouble. Sure, just don't jump. The door is open and Charlie wandered onto the gallery, but looked back at his friend. If I jump, Herb, it'll be for joy. Herbie shook his head and laughed. Only you, Charlie, only you could knock over a tent with all those high muckamucks. The doors pressed together, and in the stiff breeze, Charlie faced the city and walked to the edge. Francine would be happier now, he thought, as he gazed at the lights puncturing the metropolis. He had lost his quest for power and position, but he had Jamel. One of Herbie's workers brought up a coffee mug a few minutes later, but Charlie never drank it. He methodically moved across each gallery section, studying the darkened city burrows below. Everything had become so complicated, and he hardly believed his life had collided with the life of a woman from the future. He glanced back as the elevated doors opened. Jamel, elf strapped to her shoulder, strutted onto the gallery. The jasmine overtook him. He smiled and moved toward her, kissing her briefly. How did you know I was up here? The box transmits a signal, said Jamel with a half-grin. Your friend Herb told me what happened. Charlie raised his brows. I'm all done here, Jamel. She set Elf on the floor, and her heightened blue eyes sparkled in the dim light as she spoke softly. Being done here at the tower, Charlie, may not be all that bad. I have plans for you. Well, that sounds intriguing. Elf. She draped her arms around him. Buzzing and whooshing sounds echoed around the gallery. Elf scanned the radio band, skipping over several newscasts and songs, before settling on a popular Ira Berrigan song that Charlie always liked. Forever Yours, he said. How did you know I liked that song? You'd be surprised what I know.
2: It's being broadcast from the west coast of this continent.
0: He can pick up the west coast?
1: Piece of cake.
0: Charlie faced Jamal and assumed a dancing stance.
2: Now live from station KHJ, outside Groman's Chinese Theater in Los Angeles, here is Ira Berrigan and forever yours.
0: Charlie put his arm around her and held her hand to dance. He looked into her blue eyes, her face softly lit by the city's glow, and they drifted across the gallery. You're the cat's meow, the real McCoy. I don't know what those expressions mean, she said, looking down at Alf. But you are those things too, Charlie.
1: He knows that, Cookie.
0: Charlie held her closely, drifting through the upper air currents high over the city. He had lost everything, yet he never felt so secure. The mellow city light reflected in the green shades across her compact face. She stared into his eyes as he sang the words in a low, soft voice. High above Manhattan, they waltzed into the night, linked inexorably by fate, time, and the future. Once in a Lifetime Chapter 9 Gifford covered the telephone receiver as the radio blasted from the back office. Perkins, turn that down. This is a Bureau of Investigation office, not a dance hall. The radio went dead silent.
2: Thank you. Sounded like a dance hall. I thought you liked that radio, Giff.
0: I love the radio. For
2: 120 bucks. I love the radio. Free Iceman NR9 tabletop. All electric. Needs no batteries.
0: The radio with the magnifying tone, he chuckled. Listen, Sue, we're going to be working late again.
2: I understand. That's why I got you the radio.
0: Are the girls in bed?
2: Yeah, they're asleep, Giff.
0: Gifford sat behind his desk, balanced his elbows on the oak chair arms. He had pushed himself too much with all the anarchist activity out there, and he had neglected his family. Now he felt guilty. I'm sorry, Sue.
2: Comes with the job. You've got vacation coming anyways, if the department lets you take it.
0: Gifford spread a stack of papers and checked the desk calendar for August. His two-week vacation circled a dozen times in various inks. seemed so far away. Sixteen days. About time. I haven't had any time off since...
2: October 25th, 1925. You took the afternoon off and we went to lunch into Staten Island.
0: Listen, Washington has told me that getting more people, that will diminish my responsibilities.
2: Giff, you don't need to explain. Just be wide awake when you get home. Whenever that is, I'll be waiting.
0: Gifford smiled as the line clicked. He set down the phone, still grinning, but as he looked up, the red-headed Perkins smiled too. You weren't listening to my private conversation. Oh, no, Giff. No, I wasn't listening. Good, I didn't think so. I want to know about that raid in New Jersey. There's enough booze there to get half the state tanked. Screw the 19th Amendment anyways. Gifford stood stretched and yawned. At least we weren't called in for that one. So tonight we're checking out that meeting in the Bronx? Ah, you mean the Giants game, Giff? Perkins revealed a wide space between his teeth when he smiled. Well, I wish it was the Giants game. Gifford leaned next to the office. Where's Ellery? Someone has to mind the store. I think he went to Mama Christo's. As if he needs it, said Gifford, I have to watch over that boy. They really going to transfer him, Giff? I stated in my report that he didn't cause that truck accident, said Gifford. The store owners, the drivers, and the pedestrians were all compensated. The door office opened, and Ellery, moving like a bear with suspenders, carried two bulky white bags inside. Smells like Coney Island in here, said Giffen. Ellery, we'll be going out. Ellery dumped the bags on the side desk. Have a good time. Can I use your freed iceman? I don't care. Just answer the phone. Ellery dipped his hand into one of the bags. Don't you want to know where we're going? Huh? Where are we going, Perkins? Bronx, Halberton Hall. Ellery plucked out four hot dogs and placed them across napkins on his desk. He applied liberal portions of mustard and relish without looking up. Have a good time, Giff. Gifford rolled his eyes and Perkins smiled from the doorway. And we're meeting that snob, that government lawyer, what, Doberman? Perkins backtracked and thumbed through the sheets of paper on Gifford's desk and ran his finger down the messages. No, uh, Dillingham, Will Dillingham. He does have credentials a mile long, including a reference from E.B. Rumford. The E.B. Rumford? I don't like uppity-ups. Gifford walked around the desk and took his brown leather holster off the coat rack. Then he grabbed his suit jacket. Why does he want to see us? Something about an anarchist and a secret radio? Another wasted call. Gifford adjusted his tie and slicked back his hair in the mirror. No, Perkins, you can't think that way. These anarchists could be anywhere. You just never know. Look at Sacco and Vanzetti. The meeting at Halberton Hall proved to be more of a convention of holy rollers than of anarchists. Perkins steered the sedan through the evening Bronx traffic as Gifford peered out the window near Yankee Stadium. I hate the Yankees. John McGraw hates the Yankees. I would, too, if I had McGraw's team, said Perkins. Remarks like that can get you transferred with Ellery to Timbuktu. See if you feel that way when Ruth breaks his own record. Gifford said nothing and continued to stare out the window. He might do it. Perkins took a left and pulled along a row of amber brick apartments. Dillingham wanted us to meet him at the City Deli. Should be right up ahead. Well, we're out of his social circle, aren't we? A tall man dressed in a blue-vested suit held a snap-brim hat in front of the busy deli as an orange neon sign flashed above. Behind him, a polished long white roadster with not the slightest blemish on it reflected the light. If he was any more obvious, he looks like a real snoot, too. Be nice to him, Giff. Where's the screwdriver that I use for puncturing tires? Because this guy looks like a real flat tire. "'You want me to get the screwdriver?' Gifford waved him off and shook his head as Perkins parked about fifty yards away. Both men stepped onto the sidewalk. When Dillingham saw them, he turned and walked briskly with a maroon leather valise under his arm. Gifford knew word of the meeting would get back to Washington. "'Are you Mr. Gifford?' "'Yeah, I'm Gifford.' "'Will Dillingham.' His silky, smooth hand reflected his high-hat attitude, as if meeting him were a great privilege. Gifford detected a sweet, sickening cologne. I appreciate the opportunity to convey certain information to you this evening. Even his voice reeked of vanity. You're probably asking yourself why I traveled out here. You don't like delis, Mr. Dillingham? Asked Gifford, gazing at the deli. He could easily get a couple of roast beef for Perkins and himself right now. Dillingham's mouth curled downward as if he had eaten something rancid. Then he spoke in a low voice. I am in possession of information that can help you advance your career as well as keep in check the political fringes. Look, Dillingham, I'm not going to advance my career. Let's just see what you got. Are you aware of an individual named Charles Russo? Gifford shook his head and laughed. I deal in my office deals with lots of people. Russo lives right over there. Dillingham pointed back to the amber brick apartments. Gifford looked back but turned quickly. So what the hell is the point? The point is that Mr. Russo may be linked with forces threatening this country. Dillingham removed a gray metal film canister from his valise. We have him captured on film at the Lindbergh Parade. Tons of people saw the Lindbergh Parade, including myself and the people in my office. I don't know if I like your tone, Mr. Gifford. I have specific evidence against Charles Russo. Gifford folded his arms. Dillingham, get to the point! I personally observe Mr. Rousseau conversing with another party via a miniature radio, handheld and connected to no external power source. Gifford smiled and looked at Perkins. You say you observe this. I emphatically observe this. I believe, as Mr. Rumford does, that Russo has connections to groups threatening to tear down the fabric of our society. You find this device, Mr. Gifford, and you may uncover a vast organization. And he lives over there, asked Gifford, turning back to the apartments. Well, we will, of course, take this matter under advisement, and we can follow Russo. And follow the woman. What woman? At the parade, of course. She's involved in all this. Mr. Rumford's office is prepared to report on Mr. Russo, including his dastardly actions to Mr. Rumford's daughter. He handed the valise to Gifford. The leather smelled new. I'll give this matter the attention it deserves. Dillingham made the same sour expression with his thin lips. I hope you know whom you're dealing with, Mr. Gifford. He extended his hand to both men before he retreated down the sidewalk to his roadster. Gifford opened the leather valise as Perkins peered over his shoulders. Then the roadster's huge engine started. They must have 12 cylinders, Giff. Yeah, you're right, Perkins, but only half of them are firing. Once in a Lifetime Chapter 10 During the hot and grueling August days, Charlie's position at the tower had dissipated in his mind like a conjured-up passing thought. Even old movies or newsreels seemed more real than his own life. He had difficulty finding work. The answer to employment inquiries always came like a Sunday punch from the old man. E.B. Rumford proved pervasive in his condemnation, ruining Charlie's reputation thoroughly and completely. Locating a similar job seemed impossible. Other problems of greater importance persisted. Jamel pushed herself emotionally and physically to the limit. Her days and nights were devoted to work on the transmitter. She would sit on a stool, strange green magnifiers over her eyes, and painstakingly construct an array of circuits as complex as the city streets and as minute as a body cell. Raw materials included a gold and platinum compound, which she would suspend within the chilled neon gas of the transmitter module. More concerns bothered him. Well-dressed men driving new sedans followed him everywhere and were always a block away when he started his car. It prompted him to vary his route to Jamel's flat. He wondered if the old man had further sought to destroy him, and his worst fears were confirmed on a Wednesday afternoon in early August, when an abrupt knock shook the afternoon silence. He debated whether to open the door as an authoritative voice bellowed in the hall. Department of Investigation, Rousseau, open up! Charlie, his heart pounding, headed toward the door, But as he turned the silver knob, he realized he had left Jamel's black box transmitter on the mahogany Victrola. A greasy-haired man in his 30s, dressed in a white shirt, pinstripe suit, and a loud red tie, stepped forward. He produced a bright brass badge as three men marched in behind him. My name is Gifford Russo. I work for the Bureau of Investigation, U.S. Government, Attorney General's office. We have warrants to search your apartment. Charlie tried not to look at the box. What? Gifford walked to the kitchen table, scanned the apartment, and put his hands on his hips. All right, boys, start searching. Last time I looked, Gifford, said Charlie, as the men panned out, I was a United States citizen. Gifford pulled out a folded piece of paper. Are you? I have a warrant here to look through your place, Russo. Gifford nodded to his guys. They steered Charlie against the wall and pawed his body for weapons. Hey, 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 come on. We've been watching you, Russo. They finished the body search. You're okay. Oh, thanks a lot. I feel better now that you think I'm okay. Charlie tried to position himself near the Victrola. He needed to swipe the box before they saw it. They rummaged through his bureau and his desk. You've been acting bizarre, Russo, out of work, and yet you can somehow get money for rent, and you managed to keep gas in your car. Charlie backed toward the Victroler. Well, I've saved some money. What are your ties to foreign nationals? I don't like the National League. Ha ha. He panicked as Gifford passed by him, moving precariously closer to the Victroler. But then he stepped toward the sofa. What about anarchists? This country doesn't need any more anarchists or foreign nationals. Are any of your family members associated with my family has a farm in Ohio? Gifford pulled back the sofa cushions and hurled them across the floor and fanned his fingers below. You have a friend, Joel Finkelstein. Do you know this man is a socialist? Joel works in his father's fruit store. Charlie pinched the box off the Victrola as Gifford kneeled and checked under the sofa. But when the agent stood, he came within inches of Charlie's face. What's the matter, Russo? Worried? Who are you working for? I lost my job, bud, pure and simple. Do you know Will Dillingham? Yeah, I know Will. How were you able to broadcast at that party without a radio station or a large antenna? You're dreaming. Gifford opened the Victrola and flung out some of the discs. Dillingham heard your broadcast. Hey, those are my Ira Berrigan records. I told you, we have a warrant personally ordered by Mr. Hoover. Who? He put his hands on his hips again. Not who, Hoover. The girl, who is she, Russo? Back off, will you, Giff? Haven't you read the papers, Russo? Do you really want to hang around anarchists? Look what's going to happen to Sacco and Vanzetti next week. So you want me to be executed because that dumbbell Dillingham has it in for me? Or is it Rumford trying to ruin me? What were you doing at the parade with the girl? Who is she? I met her at the stadium, okay? Right. You support the Constitution of the United States? Charlie raised his right hand. Yes, I will preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of... You're red. You're red and you know it. I'm a little embarrassed, but sit down, wise guy. They pushed him to the kitchen table. Charlie sat down and took out his luckies. Gifford immediately confiscated the pack. Where's the radio? Right here, Giff. Speak into the pack. Gifford pulled out each cigarette, but threw up his hands. He nodded to his men. This time, they had no regard for Charlie's personal effects and ripped and tore into everything. When they were done, Gifford again planted himself in front of Charlie. You spend a lot of time at the Rumford Tower. I work there, bud. I like looking over the city. What's the big deal? The big deal is that you've been banished from that tower. E.B. Rumford has personally talked to my boss. You're all washed up, Russo. He nodded to his men. They headed for the front door. Charlie knew they were not going to clean up the mess. Before Gifford left, he turned in the doorway and pointed at him. I hope you're not red, Russo. Don't let some dame lead you down the garden path. Charlie checked the disaster and shook his head. Fearful Gifford might find out about Jamal's activities. He waited for a few minutes before venturing out. Now he would have to watch his every move. He climbed off the bathroom alley window and did not spot Gifford or his men. In a few moments, he scooted down the fire escape and sprinted through the alley. A few miles from his apartment, he caught a streetcar but switched lines several times. He finally ended up at Columbus Circle and ran into the park. The future would be jeopardized if Gifford found that transmitter. Breathing rapidly, he reached her flat and coughed all the way up the freight elevator. Gifford and his men were not outside as he rapped on her door. Jamel poked her head through the door and opened it. Charlie, what's the matter? quickly recapped his apartment's intrusion, but she appeared unconcerned. I am quite familiar with the Bureau of Investigation and its evolution through the century. Jamel, they're executing Sacco and Vanzetti. Charlie, I know things about this era and beyond. Oh, and I have inside tidbits that will keep them in line. She brought him into the back room, got him a cold beer from the icebox, and tried to quell his fears. Her tools were scattered across the wooden floor under the transmitter. She had made significant progress over the last few days. Digital impulse veins. Digital what? Haven't been invented yet. But I think I can produce what I need from contemporary materials. Then I can bring it all together inside the transmitter." Charlie sipped on his drink. Herbie told me to let him know when we're ready. I'm afraid Gifford's gonna squelch this whole thing. I need another month, maybe longer, I don't know. See, my biggest problem is getting everything to work collectively. For that, I will need neon. Neon? You see, neon is an inert gas, the outer energy levels of what this era calls electrons. I had high school physics, said Charlie. She smiled, but did not comment on his level of understandings. So the constructs, atoms, do not readily react with other atoms, hence the gaseous state. When the temperature falls, the thermal agitation dwindles and the atoms no longer rebound away. You don't see neon floating by on the street corner. The atmosphere contains only 0.0012% neon. Swell, where do we find it? chemical companies, universities, or the military. Now, once I utilize the electrical discharge in the neon with the other transmitter components, I can pulse the final transmission at a greater than light speed. Fortunately, the tower also has a great electrical capacity to handle all this. It's perfect. First, I need the neon. Once in a Lifetime Chapter 11 On a hot August day, Ellery, wedged behind the wheel, drove the car over the Hudson River Bridge toward New Jersey. From the passenger seat, Gifford peered through the field glasses at Russo's Chrysler 62, carrying the woman from the Limburg Parade out of New York. Then he checked the map. Get him now, Giff, asked Ellery, accelerating. Wow, let's see where they're going. Perkins, I want to know why we can't find out where that woman lives. Perkins leaned forward. He stroked his mustache as he spoke. Russo keeps sneaking out of his apartment. And when we do spot him, he ditches the car, disappears into taxis and streetcars. Gifford nodded and watched Russo's car cross onto the bluffs in New Jersey. What's the matter, Giff? Rumford putting the pressure on? No. Dillingham. He's got this vendetta against Russo. In my opinion, Russo is clean. I even like the guy. Ellery turned toward Gifford and talked to him as he drove. Yeah, but what about that secret radio, Giff? And what are they doing in New Jersey? The car veered toward the bridge rails. Gifford quickly grabbed the wheel. Cripes, Ellery, will you watch where you're going? I don't want to end up in the Hudson River. Whoa, whoops. Yeah, whoops. He spotted Russo's car heading south. Keep this distance. If they're up to something, and maybe we can nail them. If they're not... I'm closing this out, Rumford or no Rumford. You didn't answer my question, Giff, said Ellery, dipping his hand into another brown bag as he pulled out a hot dog, about the secret radio. Gifford watched him mush the hot dog in his mouth, glanced at Perkins and shook his head. As far as that radio goes, I think Dillingham is boiling because Russo was engaged to the Rumford girl. That old windbag Dillingham got dumped. They're powerful people, Giff. Charlie repeatedly checked the mirror, convinced someone would be after them. I don't like it. What's the matter? Asked Jamel, turning from the open window. Ever since they raided my apartment, I keep thinking they're after me.
1: A good assumption, Charlie.
0: Easy for you to say. He looked in the mirror again. We're almost at the Buckley plant, said Jamel. And don't worry about the Bureau of Investigation. Yeah, tell that to Sacco and Vanzetti. Jamel leaned toward him and ran her finger down his nose. Then you'll just have to behave yourself. Listen, I have some tickets to the ball game. Once we get the neon, you could stand a break. I know I could. Charlie smiled, but as he turned toward the waterfront, he questioned what she could do against Gifford and his agents. He moved over to a dirty cobblestone road lined with dozens of brick buildings. As the car bounced, Jamel pointed out the window to green and yellow trucks backed up to a loading dock. A few hundred yards ahead, painted across the bricks were faded green letters. Buckley Chemical Products. What did he say on the phone? Buckley sounded as if he had the neon, but I don't know if he could keep it at the temperature I want. He didn't say much. His people were going to check. Charlie pulled the 62 near a stack of barrels and trash along the side of the building. He got out of the car, and as he pretended to light a cigarette, she quickly held his wrist. Charlie, love, this is a chemical factory. With the unlit cigarette hanging from his mouth, Charlie turned toward the building. Ah, so it is. He stuck the cigarette in the pack and then walked onto the cobblestones. Trucks and cars rumbled over the bumpy road as Jamel moved up behind him, with Alf strapped to her shoulder. Jamel, I could swear somebody's after us. Listen, I can take care of Gifford, believe me. I know certain things that he doesn't know. Right now we have to get the neon, Charlie, if I don't get that transmitter functioning before the Avigis break through the continuum, Gifford and the Bureau of Investigation and everything else is going to be irrelevant. Charlie nodded. They headed back across the lot, past the trucks, and on to the loading docks. The place reeked from combination of hundreds of chemical odors. She found the shipper behind his glass window office and they were directed through a long, low-ceiling warehouse stacked with green and white metal barrels and wood boxes. Charlie followed Jamel up a creaky wooden stairway to the upper offices. At the end of an open area with dozens of people manning phones, a dark, varnished wood door had Buckley's name in black letters on the frosted glass. Charlie wandered over to the large window pane as they waited for Buckley. He peered through the open Venetian blinds and down the alley into the street. Something outside bothered him. He remained at the window until they were called inside Buckley's office. Buckley, a chunky little man with thinning hair and an unshaven face, had a yellow-lined piece of paper in his hand. "'I'm Harold Buckley. You must be Jamal. And you're here concerning one of the so-called noble gases.' "'Yes, I am. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Buckley. This is my friend Mr. Russo.' Charlie shook hands with Buckley. We are anxious to procure the neon, and as I have said, money is no object. Buckley tightened his face and stroked his huge chin. Then he shook his head. I've had my people check this. We don't have neon. We don't have the neon, nor could we cool it to minus 20 degrees Celsius for a sustained period of time. Such insulation doesn't exist. Buckley motioned her over to the desk and spread out a number of blueprint drawings. Charlie assumed elf somehow scanned the schematics. Jamel listened, adding a few comments about submolecular stability and ambient temperature. From Charlie's limited understanding, the neon canisters needed some type of insulation. "So it's more of a container problem," said Jamel. "Exactly. Now, up in Boston, I know they've done work with neon at the Science Institute. I know Max Friedman from our work during the war. My secretary has his number up there. I can place a call. Boston. Jamel turned. Charlie could see the disappointment and frustration in her blue eyes. Boston? Yes, Boston, said Buckley. If there are people in the greater New York area who have that type of neon, well, I'm not aware of it. Excuse me, Mr. Buckley. She moved over to Charlie and spoke in a low voice. Elf can easily construct the thermal material needed for sustained insulation. What do you think about Boston? Red Sox have a lousy record. She rolled her eyes as he continued. I think there have to be other companies locally. If not, we need to go to Boston. Is the neon that important? Neon is the only electrical discharge possible for faster-than-light pulses. I can't transmit without it. The phone rang. Buckley reached back and lifted the receiver to his ear. Yes, this is Harold Buckley. Who? Yes. Charlie, already suspicious, held Jamel's wrist. When Buckley's bulging eyes shifted, Charlie pulled her slowly toward the door. Buckley wiped his hand over his mouth several times and looked directly at Charlie. Charlie grasped Jamel's hand and they ran back into the main office. Through the side windows, he saw a shiny black sedan parked across the alley. I knew it. When Buckley emerged from his office with a gun in hand, Charlie spun Jamel toward a stairway. He slammed the door, and they leaped forward, several steps at a time. They bounded down the stairway into the storage area. People moved around upstairs. He held her hand, and they darted through the stacks. Gifford's voice infiltrated the basement as the upper door opened. "'Russo, I want to talk to you and that woman!' Charlie studied the long rows of barrels, boxes, and bottles, and then he turned to Jamel. Now what? He's probably got his men in this place. Listen, Charlie, it's time that I tell him what I know. "'Halt, halt right there!' A huge, wide-shouldered, bushy-haired man in a white shirt pointed a gun from the end of the aisle. He spoke in a raspy, mellow tone. "'Anarchist!' Oh, this is swell, said Charlie. I may be speculating, Charlie, but I don't think they're going to be firing guns inside of a chemical plant. Ellery Padakis, Bureau of Investigation, you're under arrest! She pulled Charlie back, and they ran between the stacks. I said you're under arrest! You're right, he said, leading her toward Ellery. But as Charlie moved under the rows of green and white barrels... A red-headed man with a hefty mustache appeared with Ellery down the far end. They squeezed through an open space between the barrels. But as he ducked, Charlie heard Gifford's voice again. You're all done, Russo. Let's not have any trouble. Ellery, where is he? I don't see him, Giff. Jamel hid with Charlie behind the barrels. Let me talk to him before someone gets hurt. What are you going to tell him? I have a piece of information that will protect us. Charlie stuck his head out the other side. Ellery stood like a peluka 20 feet down the aisle with his gun drawn. As Jamel tried to stop him, Charlie carefully rolled out a barrel and positioned it in the middle of the aisle. With both hands on the end, he quickly shoved it and it rolled over on the wooden floor. Ellery attempted to jump as the barrel spun rapidly and caught his feet. Charlie sprinted into the aisle just as Ellery lost his balance and the barrel toppled him over. His gun spun onto the floor, and Charlie scooped it up as he moved quickly. Charlie, let's find Gifford. Ellery, beached on the floor, looked up. Rousseau, don't you know you're under arrest? Ellery, I have your gun, replied Charlie. Oh, come on, get up. Charlie held the gun while he hoisted a large man to his feet. You can't get out of here. Giff will arrest you. You're going to help us. Let's go, said Charlie. Jamel held his arm. Charlie, let me talk to Gifford and put an end to this. I can pressure him with the things I know. He held Ellery's gun, but he turned back to her. Tell me. I'll tell Giff. What things? I can't tell you. I don't want to change things any more than they have already been changed. Listen, Jamel, unless you're absolutely certain that you have the upper hand... She pressed her lips together. I'm not certain. I truly think they'll respond to what I know. Russo! shouted Gifford a few miles over. Jamel, they're going to arrest us, and you can forget about transmitting anything. He looked at Ellery. Come on, bud. We're all going for a little ride. Gifford ran into the outside alley. Fanning his gun, he glanced toward Perkins, facing the road. Perkins, what the hell are you doing? Where's Ellery? He's uh with Russo. Oh, good, he's got them. I never thought Ellery had it in him. Perkins pointed back to the street. No? Russo has him. What? Russo, holding a gun, forced Ellery into the 62. And the woman jumped inside. Russo got behind the wheel, the gun still aimed at Ellery, and the car started. Tell me this isn't happening, Perkins. How am I supposed to explain this? You don't. The 62 sped away down the cobblestone and disappeared around the next building. And what the hell were they doing asking for neon? Making explosives? asked Perkins. I don't know that. Get on the horn. Russo is in serious trouble now. What a bonehead move. Get his tag number out. I just hope he doesn't hurt Ellery. I enjoy bringing science fiction into an earlier time. In this way we experience both ideas and highlight both the science fiction and the marked change of another era. But all this means nothing without an adventure. An adventure they will, in the early airplanes, and procuring material for Jamel's transmitter. And with the adventure comes the overriding moral purpose, albeit far away in the future. A noble adventure. Before I head out, a word about ALF. Having Charlie experienced an encased operating system more advanced than the computer's 90 years hence, demonstrates the limitations of the 1920s, as well as the possibilities for the future. I'm Robbie P. Fitton, a little traveling music please, and away we go!